Hello, I'm Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera, and this conversation today is with Charles Parsons. Charles, I have dubbed Cincinnati Opera's lifelong ambassador. Charles has been coming to Cincinnati Opera since 1952, you do the math, and has continued to come to Cincinnati Opera through the zoo days and into our current residency at Music Hall. And as we anticipate our 100th anniversary, I hope Charles will be front and center as we turn 101. But for the rest of this time together, Charles and I are going to talk about his memories of the zoo, why he loves opera, and how opera became an important part of his life. I think I could use the words, what becomes a legend most in describing mm. Charles Parsons? Because um, in my now, just over a decade working with Cincinnati Opera, it is synonymous in its history and in its lore with your name, Charles. You have been coming to opera since 1954? 1952. Two years before I was born. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) How did you first fall in love with opera as an art form? What drew you to it? It was meant to be. In fact, I think it's even a miracle because in one incredible moment, I discovered my two great passions, opera and Shakespeare. I discovered both at approximately 2.05 in the afternoon on February 6, 1952. I was 11 years old at the time, and I was just wandering around my parents' house, and for some reason I went into the guest bedroom and turned on the radio. And a voice said, the music vividly portrays a thunderstorm at sea. Oh, really? How, how does music do that? And he went on to say, there's this man and this woman, and they love each other passionately. And there's another man who hates them. He's going to break them up. They're going to die, and they're going to sing it in Italian, and you'll love it. And I thought, really? What is this? I'm 11 years old. I didn't even know what opera is. Turned out it was Verdi's Otello, which gave me the opera part, which is based on Shakespeare's Othello. Did you start reading Shakespeare also at a rather tender age? Same time. Wow. Same time. So for an 11-year-old, the verse complexities of something like Shakespeare, did they puzzle you at first or did you have some sort of little magic key? How did did your comprehension of Shakespeare grow? Simply by reading a lot of it. Mm Mm-hmm and seeing as much as I could, which was not a whole great deal then. What town are we talking about? Cincinnati. So you were born and raised in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Um, I've lived in Cincinnati most of my life, except for periods in London and Rome. Um, Name dropper. That's right. (laughs) Hey, when you got it, want it. But you were reading, you read Shakespeare a lot as a kid, saw Mm -hmm. what you could on the stage. So when do you start going to see opera? At age 11 as well? 1952, that summer. The first one was Aida, Madame Butterfly, and The Barber of Seville. The Barber, of course, was the added production. Uh, Cincinnati Opera, when they were at the zoo, at the zoo, yes, at the zoo, um, would always add a special extra week in which they would reprise 
uh, the most popular operas of that season, plus a production of another one that had not been performed. Uh, it was usually pretty much thrown together, but they knew how to throw them together in those days. Uh, so that's where the barber came in. I look back at some of the early years of our company, going well before your opera-going years, in from the 20s to the 50s, let's say. But even in the 50s, when you started going to the... Even in the 1950s, when you started going to performances. And I marvel at the sheer number of titles the company was able to present during the course of the summer. And of course, there's a part of me that wants to... Uh, go in a time capsule and sit behind Maestro Cleva in 1939 at rehearsal and understand, well, how did they really sound? How did they really look? How much rehearsal could they really give them? But to your neophyte, opera-going eyes and ears, what were some of the real highlights, a couple of real highlights of your very first opera-going years? What are a couple of performances, a couple of moments that hooked you beyond repair? Amongst my first operas uh, was Samson and Delilah, about the second or third year I started going. Um, my parents took me, of course. They, they had no idea what was going on, but that's what the boy wants. Well, we'll take him. Um, Samson and Delilah with uh, Claire May Turner and Kurt Baum. Uh, was the high a, C tenor, they used to call him, yes. right? Kurt Baum, the high C tenor. Oh, yes, He loved sir. those high Cs. Uh, there's a, it's probably true, if, or as the Romans say, if it's not true, it should be, uh, that Baum was singing Trovatore at the Met. And the curtain after um, Di Quilapira came down too soon, and he was still holding his high C, so he just pushed the curtains aside, came out till he... Finish with that high C. Se non è vero e ben trovato. Absolutely. Si. So Samson and Delilah with Kurt Baum and Carmen mm -hmm. Turner is a first one. What about that performance sticks out in your head as a memory? Just the sheer power? First of all, <clears throat> visuals in the long run are more powerful than audio things. So that particular opera I remember very much in visual sight the temple of Dagon in the first act and in the same temple inside when it falls down at the end. Uh, so I really couldn't tell you much about it uh, musically. But that didn't last long. I began to realize and to differentiate uh, amongst performances. Uh, people will say to me, you went to see the opera, same opera twice, Yes, I've even seen Aida four times in a season, very recently, in fact. Um, no two performances are alike. And I have a very good, uh, what do I want to call it, a memory in my years. Mm. That while I may not remember what they look like now, I do remember what they sounded like. And that is what is so very important. And something else that uh, most people don't realize, and I wish everybody did, you really need to know the text. Don't just depend on, oh, it's not a pretty scene and they're singing pretty, but if you know what they're singing about, how much more uh, that adds to the experience. Uh, 
if you don't know that, how much do you miss? Mm. True. So much can be said with music, but then you put that extra interpretation of the words to it. That's when it really comes alive for me, the way how somebody says that. Uh, a little quick example in Tosca, the second act, <clears throat> when Scarpia uh, asked, uh, or putting the moves on Tosca uh, at the uh, cost of her boyfriend, Kavra Dossi, tenor, uh, being executed. And she asked him, uh, how much? She doesn't say, what do you want? Just She assumes it's money. Quanto. Uh, how much? How differently various sopranos will do that one word. Yeah. And, and right after that, how the different Scarpias reply with quanto, uh, that just adds so much for me, hearing these little things. I'd love for you, if you wouldn't mind, to engage in a little exercise with me. Uh, you're going to be my virtual reality headset. And you're going to start at the parking lot of the old zoo when you arrive. And you're going to give me a tour, visually and orally, from the moment you arrive to the moment you take your seat. And describe for me, to the best of your recollection, what was it like physically, sonically, uh, smell? Use all of your senses to create for us who never have been to the zoo who never had the chance to go to the zoo, with all of its faults and all of its glories. So start at the parking lot, Charles, and get us to the downbeat. Uh, I started ushering in 1956 <clears throat> and became assistant head usher in 1958. Uh, Joel Grossman was head usher, and he put me into that position. Uh, I would drive into the parking lot, and uh, the attendant there would give me or gave me a handful of pass cards, I guess I'd call them, to get the ushers in to the into the zoo. Uh, so my primary job was to sit out front of the zoo on the benches that line the main entrance there. And as the ushers would show up, and it was required that they have either, uh, well, I'm groping for, white uh, shirts and blouses and dark blue or black pants and skirt. And I'd give them this little card, which they would give to the attendant inside the zoo, which got them in without having to pay for it. Uh, when people ask me, where did you meet so-and-so? It is surprising how many of my friends, I will say, oh, at the zoo. At the zoo? Yes, at the opera. And uh, after that, I didn't have to do anything. Just stay for the performance. What and, a cushy job. Oh, it's even cushier. Because after a couple of years, I realized... Uh, where I could sit all the time in the same seat. The first floor of the pavilion at the Zoo Opera was divided into two big sections with uh, an aisle going down between them. 
And I noticed that for some reason, the left end of the left section, the first four rows, the end seat was never sold. What is that? So I looked into it and found out all of the rows had 10 seats, except for the first four rows, which had 11. So they never sold them because they didn't know they were there. It wasn't even on the uh, seating uh, chart. So I would always sit in uh, row two so I'd have somebody in front of me. I didn't want to see the orchestra, which was on the same level as the uh, audience at that time. Yeah, there was no orchestra pit. They were just seated, right. seated on the floor with what I can see from photographs, something that is not much more elaborate than a white picket fence separating right. them from the audience. That's right. So the pavilion inside, uh, for those of uh, us who uh, have been to some of the more recently constructed outdoor venues, it had a roof, right? It had a roof. Open at the sides. Open at the sides. Were there any prevailing breezes on hot nights going from one side to the other? Was there any relief from Cincinnati's summer heat? Not much. Uh, most of the performances were very, very hot, but occasionally uh, a cool one would come in or sometimes rain. And as I remember, there weren't very many performances that, uh, that uh, the people got real wet uh, because the rain always seemed to come from the uh, audience left. And if it was not sold out, they could just move over uh, out of the rain into a, a drier place. Uh, but you just never know what the weather, weather is going to be like or what might show up in the audience. Uh, in 1954, opening with Lucia, I think, uh, the new uh, left wing had been built. Uh, originally, they were going to, there was going to be a right wing and then connect those with the center. Uh, but the center and the right wing never got uh, built. And strange things would show up. I know there was one performance at the first intermission, there was some woman, people left to get drinks, that kind of stuff. There was one woman sitting there with her feet up on top of the back of the seat in front of her. And she was just hysterical, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. It was a chinchilla. A real been, chinchilla. A real live chinchilla, which uh, had gotten up into the halfway of the uh, left wing. So uh, Well, it is a zoo, after all. That's right. <laughs> and so uh, another um, usher there, who was one of my best friends, Brent Owens, and I came down each end of that row to stop the or to try to capture this chinchilla. Was that in your job description, handing out pass cards and capturing stray animals? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so Brent... Picked it up by the tail. Okay, we've got it. We took it out of the pavilion. And, well, now what do we do with it? Well, Lost and Found is in the, uh, the ticket uh, trailer. So we took it over there and plopped it on the, uh, the wicket, the entrance where you buy tickets, and uh, gave well, it to Some Dor poor zookeeper to come and find it amongst the detritus of binoculars and purses mm -hmm. and watches and sneakers. Yes, Dorothy Westrick was the uh, 
ticket seller. She went hysterical because as soon as Brent let go of the chinchilla, it was now running around the inside of the the ticket uh, truck or whatever that thing was. Too funny. So you can debunk or verify the most commonly told story about the zoo, which is the unannounced, unscripted, or unscored vocal accompaniment by the inhabitants, the year-round, day, 24-hour-long inhabitants of the zoo. Do you have a particular memor- particularly memorable vocal interruption? Oh, yes. One of the great singers of all time was Montserrat Caballet, who came to Cincinnati, the zoo, to sing Il Pirata. Uh, Julian Patrick was the baritone in him, and there was a duet in the second act for the two of them, which was suddenly interrupted by the very loud braying of a donkey that was in the children's zoo next to the pavilion, at which... Uh, Cavalier said, okay, well, more. And she started to laugh, which then got Julian Patrick laughing too. And, but they managed to get back together. But uh, indeed, that was one of the more memorable uh, interruptions, but probably the most devastating one was the year they did the medium. Uh, John Carlo Minotti's dramatic opera with Lily Chukasian uh, has the... Um, Madam Flora. Madam Flora, right. What happened at the end of the opera? What's supposed to happen at the end of the opera? There is a mute boy that Madam Flora is taking care of. Toby. Toby. And he is scared and he hides in a big um, puppet booth that is in her apartment. But Madam Flora, who is a fortune teller, has begun to believe there really are spirits. And she has this incredible aria towards the end about how she is seeing terrible things and now they're with her in her own home. And Toby hears that and he rustles the curtain on the front of the puppet booth and she thinks it's a ghost. And she pulls out a gun. Just, who is it? Who's there? Stop or I'll shoot. Well, that's the usual interpretation. At this one performance, opening night of the opera, of course, it turned out to be, who's there? Who is it? A peacock outside the pavilion replied, me. As Lily said after the performance, I knew I'd lost them. There was nothing I could do except shoot, which she did. <laughs> but uh, that was really a wonderful moment for everybody, I'm sure, except for Lily. For all of the ups and downs of opera at the zoo, it still holds an amazing, nostalgic fascination for those who went. In my years working here at the opera, not only is it the locus, as you said, of the making of friendships, uh, give me a dime for every time I've heard someone say, I met my future wife or my future husband at the zoo, I'd be a rich man. What about the zoo for you made it so special, a musical and social experience? What What was its magic? Well, to be sort of blunt about it, an opera house is an opera house. 
whether it's the Met or here, La Scala, there's still a similarity between all the opera houses. But the zoo was not. Uh, it, there was no red and gold and decorations like that. It was very austere. Uh, and that was one thing that definitely made it different. And the fact that it was so very laid back uh, you could bring drinks in to the pavilion and uh, drink during the performance. Uh, people would bring in uh, peanuts, and depending how close you were to them, they'd hear as the people were opening up the peanuts. Uh, it was just very relaxed, and people wanted to be there. And it was like a big family in a way. The number of people that went backstage after a performance was two and three times the number of people that come backstage to the green room here at Music Hall. And many of the audience became friends with the singers. Um, Zell, oh, what's Zell's last name? Schulman. Yes, Zell Schulman. Uh, became friends with Abe Polakoff, baritone, who sang here several times. And he would go over to her place, and they'd have a wonderful supper together or whatever meal. Uh, they'd go over to the Alms Hotel and go swimming. Alms Hotel was where most of the singers uh, stayed during the season. And there it really was like one big happy family because they would cook for each other if somebody was singing that night, somebody who was not singing would fix the evening meal, and they'd go swimming in the pool and just have a great time. And since people walked more in those days, they could walk to the zoo opera, which to me today seems like that's an awful long way, but that's what they did. So it sounds like what you're describing, Charles, is an atmosphere that has this interesting combination of a relaxed way of summertime music making, let's say. But then again, you had the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra in the pit, or the not pit, as it were, and Fausto Cleva on the podium for so many seasons and so many performances. And we do have some recorded evidence, particularly from the 50s onward, um, that it wasn't relaxed music making there was some real fire that came off of that stage and out of those musicians. So it was this w wonderful combination of, uh, it seems, of a, a an unusually laid-back atmosphere, partly, because, I imagine, because of the heat, too, but also that um, you had great singers and a great orchestra and great conductors giving their all during those times. Definitely. <clears throat> One of the most incredible things I ever saw there uh, the last week that the opera was there was, <clears throat> uh, what, eight soloists from the Vienna State Opera Ballet. And one of the dances they did, they performed, I think, three nights, but on one of those programs, they actually danced Bella Bartok's The Miraculous Mandarin, Whoa. which is one of the most complex, thorny uh, orchestra pieces ever written. The Cincinnati Opera Orchestra did it in one rehearsal. Whoa. Uh, it may have been a very long rehearsal, <laughs> but I doubt that it was, uh, because there were, even then, union rules. 
But still, they did it in one rehearsal. Tell us, if you would, even just one experience of going to the zoo without any particular expectation, or for that matter, even later years in music hall, seeing a name announced on the playbill that may or may not have been familiar, hearing that performance and thinking, that's going to be a star. Did you do any star-making yourself, as it were, in predicting? I don't know about star-making, or particularly uh, predicting something, but certainly one of the most memorable um, debuts at the zoo was, as we called him at first before he started singing, there was Cheryl Milnes. Cheryl Milnes. Cheryl Milnes, also <laughs> doing business as Cheryl Mills. <laughs> You know, who is this baritone? He's singing three roles in one season. That's something else that's very different now. Uh, people will come in, major singers, will come in for just one role anywhere during a season. But this was the days when they would do multiple roles, major roles, and just spend the summer here. Well, Cheryl Mills uh, made his debut Oh, if I got him in the right order. Anyway, that that season he sang, uh, um, oh, what did he the Count de Luna, and two other things which just escaped me right now. But, uh, oh, um, when he began to sing, oh, that's who Cheryl Mildes is. <laughs> He, of course, became one of the greatest uh, singers ever to appear at the zoo or anywhere else for that matter. And he was very faithful to the zoo opera. He liked coming here, even though it was hot and miserable. I don't know off the top of my head how many roles he sang here or how many performances, but it was a lot. And he has a great memory. He can almost tell you who the messenger was in Aida uh, in 1962 or whatever. What is it about a voice that sets it apart for you? When you hear an opera singer and they really catch your imagination or your emotions, what are a couple of things that stand out for you that give it the, as it were, Charles Parsons seal of approval? The emotion that it puts across. The fact that, true, people do not sing in real life when they have a conversation, but in opera they do. How effective is that conversation they have? I, I feel like I am overhearing it, as it were. And in a way, that makes me part of their conversation. Uh, and that's one great interest of me. Uh, for me, which I mentioned about knowing the words. I can't tell you all the words, of course, but there are certainly uh, passages in everything that, okay, here comes the, ah, oh, yes, she did it right that time, or he did it wrong that time. We had a number of those, too. Uh, I don't know if I should uh, tell stories out of school, but I will. Uh, you in, earned the right, Charles. <laughs> in, I think it was 19, late 50s. Well, anyway, 
uh, Fausto Cleva was the music director for 27 years. And he hired a tenor by the name of Antonio S. I can't even say it now. Antonio S. Puzzola, who was one of the most god-awful voices ever to walk across the stage. He killed off La Boheme, and then something else. He looked bad. He sounded bad. Where Maestro uh, Claver's intellect was, that's I, I do not know. But probably I did uh, probably the worst, though I did not hear it. You ask Regina Resnick, Resnick, same as mezzo-soprano, sang her first Carmen at the zoo. That's right. And the Don Jose in that performance was one Eddie Rule, R-U-H-L. She still remembers those two performances. And she, she laughs about it now. But since, especially since this is her first carbon, and to go up against this wall of sound, I hate to say singing, I really made an impression on her that, whoa, uh, there are a few recordings out there of uh, Eddie Rule tenor. And she's right. <laughs> Definitely right. So you hit on something, Charles, that I think anyone listening to our conversation would love to hear your perspective because you are a passionate opera goer. In all the writing that you have done in the years that I've known your work, you're also also very fair. But what is it about opera that incites such extremes of passionate reaction? Extremes. When people... Uh, well, let's talk about critics. Let's do that. Uh, if it's a good performance, yes, they'll say so. But far too often, critics go in with a hidden agenda. They don't like the opera. How can they be fair in judging that performance if they don't like the opera to start with? Or maybe they have it in for some soprano or tenor. How can you judge them fairly? Let me give you the worst example of that I can think of. Uh, for about five years, I guess, I was assistant director of a small opera company in Kentucky, Center Civic Opera. And we gave the world premiere of an opera called Seathorn by Henry Humphreys, who was the music critic for the Enquirer, I guess it was. And it was not a great opera. Uh, it was a setting of the Greek uh, drama Phaedra set in the South during World War II. The music was very pleasant, uh, nothing great but enjoyable. I staged it and designed the set, and the review in the Enquirer the next day by James Wearsbicky, remember that name, is the most vicious thing I've ever seen a critic say. He did not like it because it was too old-fashioned, but his last line of that review was, 
even the Metropolitan Opera would be hard-pressed to make an opera out of this operatic sow's ear. Oh, dear. Henry was devastated. Absolutely devastated. Uh, Ever since that, I always think there's a big difference between saying something is bad and it's put in whatever expletive you want. Mm -hmm. And I have never done that and never will. What is it about the art form itself that causes people to be so passionate? There is an unstated love for beautiful things, of which opera, for me, and a lot of people, is number one. Um, But why do they like a particular thing? My favorite philosopher is George Santayana, who in his book, The Sense of Beauty, says that taste is ultimately irrational. A lot of people wouldn't know where to start to even say why they love something, just that they do. You saw us through the last decades of our life at the zoo, and you've been with us ever since we moved to Music Hall in the early 1970s. What do you love about Music Hall? What do I love about Music Hall? It's history, I think. Sure, the floorboards have been replaced on stage over the years, but just walking out there or even seeing and think, oh, that's where Noel Rankin sang. That's where whoever you like, they stood on that spot. They knew where the hot spot was. A hot spot is where the uh, acoustics really amplify the voice. And once the singer finds out where that hot spot is, they're going to get to it as much as possible. After finding their key light right in the spot. That's right. Exactly right. The one uh, bass, Michael Van Engen, said that your best friend as an opera singer is the uh, light director. He can make you look really good with that rosy pink light on your face. Is it so? Is it in some ways the ghosts of music hall that you like, or is there is there something about the way music sounds in the hall that you like as well? I cannot say. Okay, here comes heresy. I cannot say I'm that impressed by the acoustics of music hall. Now I have not heard anything in. The uh, present uh, renovation. Right. But uh, prior to that, there were three or two places that know under the balcony on the first floor. Terrible spot to sit. And the boxes on either side. Only for show. Only for show, (laughs) because the music went right past them. Exactly. (laughs) But otherwise, yes, it uh, has great acoustics. Uh, And the higher you go, the better the sound is up in the gallery because the music rises up. You've been attending opera since 1952, and you've been attending Cincinnati Opera faithfully since then as well. Uh, What about the art form or the presentation of the art form has changed in 
your opera-going years? One or two things in particular that stick out in your mind. Visually, of course, things are so different now than they were at the zoo. Uh, sets and costumes at the zoo were provided by Anthony Stivanello, who was a one-man opera impresario. And they were heavy painted canvas and nothing real about them, nothing particularly beautiful. But now when you get a, a, a production here at Music Hall, most of them, particularly under your administration, are absolutely beautiful productions. Uh, there was a production of the Magic Flute under your predecessor uh, in which the sets came from Indiana University. They were black and gray. I referred to it as, in the review even, as the Merd production. It looked just awful. There may have been a flute there, but it certainly wasn't magic. <laughs> but if you saw the magic flute this past summer, the phenomenal uh, expertise and imagination that went into that production. So even after 60-plus years of opera going, there are still things that can surprise and delight you. There are new tales to be told. There are new songs to be sung. What do you look forward to in your next years of opera going? Are there things, are there titles you'd like to see? Are there singers you haven't heard that you'd like to hear? What are, what's on your own little wish list? My wish list is very easy for number one. L'Amore dei Tre Re. Oh, the Montemezzi opera. Montemezzi, The Love of Three Kings. Uh, it was one of the biggest successes that Cincinnati Opera had in 1944, 45, and 47. With the composer conducting. With the composer conducting. A first-rate cast for it. Uh, In talking to who would have been here at Cincinnati Opera uh, not too many years ago at the zoo in uh, one of the buildings there, uh, I actually did a little... Um, history of Cincinnati Opera, and I concluded, and I had singers to perform, four singers, I concluded with almost the entire final act of Le Mode de Trede, and it was a big crowd there. I mean, they practically, well, they did mob Patty Beggs, who was there, why don't you do this opera? That's a good question, Evans. Why don't you do this opera? Point well taken. Uh, Point well it taken. is one of the most beautiful operas, and the text uh, is one of the beautiful, very interesting texts in that so many things are a double entendre. It uses the text of the play uh, written by Sem, S-E-M, Benelli, And you have to, if you really know the words for that one, how much more you get. Because this, I think, is the best uh, libretto ever written. Of course, it was the play itself. Uh, The Three Kings, the oldest one, is King Archibaldo, and he is blind. And he makes references sort of backhandedly to that. 
uh, his son, uh, he is the is medieval times. Uh, he and his army has conquered northern Italy, and he is king. His son Manfredo is the prince and will become king, and he has married Fiora, a princess from the conquered people. And Archibaldo, just by hearing, knows that Fiora is not faithful to Manfredo. She's having an affair with the local prince of Vito. And of course, Archibaldo cannot see who this is, but he hears the footsteps. And at the end of the first act, he has caught them, so to speak, but a veto gets away, and the act begins with what, for me, is one of the most horrifying lines in all opera, in which, in Italian, of course, he says, now let me be truly blind to turn his eyes from what he would does re- re- realize, realize yeah. it is an adulterous affair. Um, what a powerful story. In the uh, end of the second act, Archibaldo has strangled Fiora, and at the end, he carries the dead body off stage. And the music, what an invention it portrays the stumbling, slow footsteps of Archibaldo. And since he cannot see, and he insists on carrying the dead body off stage, uh, his son Manfredo has come back. And in order to end the act, Archibaldo says to his son, lead me on, I will follow your footsteps. And, of course, the third act is the, the great ending in which Archibaldo finds out it is his own son that he has killed in trying to kill Avito. Wow. It's an amazing story. It truly and is. I, I think hits on so many of the things that we've been talking about in this last little while of opera as an art form is so compelling because of the heightened emotions of the moral lessons it teaches, whether it's teaching them through comedy or yes. teaching them through tragedy. Uh, I keep going back to the old saw that I've been uh, sawing since I came to work for the company, that it is the modern expression of the ancient Greek theater, where these presentations were done in part not only to entertain, but to also to teach us how to try and become better human beings. And they were a religious rite as yeah. well. For you, Charles, uh, a lifetime of opera going How has opera influenced your life outside the opera house? Influenced my life outside the opera house? I hope I'm not going over the top on this, but I think it has made me a better person, a friendly person. Uh, It has just influenced how I react to anything. I think one of the great things that is missing in so many people's life today is beauty. I think beauty, whether it be painted art, sculpture, music, 
literature, they all give this added dimension to a person. And if you can share that, uh, I taught for what seventeen years in the uh, at UC in the um, Osher, Osher Institute for Learning in Old Age or something like that. Anyway, the Ollie Institute. Ollie, yeah, yes, O L L I. And I never felt like I was teaching. Teaching. Uh, somebody even asked me about teaching, and I said, "No, I'm not teaching." I am sharing my love with you and the rest of the class. I think you've answered my next question in, uh, in, in a roundabout way, but what would you suggest for someone who is going to give opera a try for the first time? The best opera to start with is a long one, but I think that you will be so captivated by it. And that's Carmen. Uh, for simplicity, Madame Butterfly. Uh, for, I don't want to say everyday life, La Bohème. Uh, those would be good. Carmen is a long opera, but it's very colorful. And uh, so there's a lot to see, keep you awake. <laughs> and um, that, would be a good, that would be my first choice. I always ask my guests um, a list of the same questions, not just as a level set, but because we all bring to these conversations our expertise, but we all, as Cincinnatians, have things that we all like that are passionate about. So forgive me if I ask you some boilerplate questions that have been asked many times before. Sure. What did you have for breakfast? This morning? This morning. Plain oatmeal, two glasses of milk, and two glasses of orange juice. It's very healthy and balanced. Disgusting. Um, what, what books are you reading right now? What books am I reading right now? I have gone over to the dark side. <laughs> On my computer, I have now over 3,000 books. Oh, my goodness. I'm reading a whole lot. <laughs> uh, the most recent one, as in last night, uh, I'm rereading uh, the complete works of T.S. Eliot. Uh, who was an American from St. Louis, but everybody thinks of him as being English. True. Uh, he is a great favorite of mine. I've read everything he's written uh, from the play Murder in the Cathedral, Cocktail Party. and But the thing that moves me the most are one of his last works, The Four, Quartet, Quart Four Quartets which are four fairly short poems, and each one has the name of a place associated with Eliot's English family, because his, his ancestors came from East Coker. Mm -hmm. There were others in Little Gidding. Uh, he was familiar with a, 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 a geological landmark by the... Um, Rocks in the ocean. Oh, what's that called? Anyway, uh, I've been to all four of these places. And if there's any place that may be heaven on earth, it is East Coker. East Coker is the southwest of uh, England. I believe it's probably in Somerset or Zoomerset, as they say. 
Um, it's a very small town. Uh, there's probably no more than 20, 25 houses, mm-hmm. a large cemetery, and Elliot is buried there in the church, and they have a small uh, sculptured uh, memorial to him there. And I've been there several times, always in the summer. I don't know what it's like during the winter. But during the summer, I recognize it in terms of beautiful smell. There are so many flowers around, particularly hollyhocks. And there is a peace about it. Or maybe I'm just being so snowed by T.S. Eliot. No, I mean, you described something we were talking about earlier, that the the love of beauty is a love of all of the senses intertwined and the way that they interact with one another and influence one another. When you say all of the senses intertwine, the greatest beauty should be for everyone. Who are you talking to right now? Who is that person? That's the greatest beauty. And I'll be a little political. That is the beauty that is missing in the, far, in the uh, Middle East. Mm. So sad. You're absolutely right. Do you watch television? And if you do, is there a particular program that has caught your fascination of late? I'm now living at a Brookwood Retirement Community, and I have cable TV for the first time. So I look at a lot of uh, special stations, National Geographic. And, of course, I'm hooked on the sci-fi channel (laughs) and the food channel and all that. (laughs) That that segues to my next question. Mm -hmm. Um, You probably don't go to many restaurants these days, but even memories. A favorite Cincinnati restaurant or a culinary tradition? Culinary tradition was just a couple of weeks ago, the Golden Lamb in Lebanon. Everyone talks about it. For 20 years or more, probably, uh, a group of friends and I, as many as 12, have been going to the Golden Lamb for Thanksgiving. And we always go for the last seating, which this year was at 6.30, because we don't feel like we're being rushed to get out so the next set of Diners can come in. We can stay until they close, and we do. (laughs) What's the best piece of advice you ever received? That was from my father. Get paid for what you know, not what you do. Oh, how beautiful. Favorite singer outside of the world of opera? Oh, Cleo Lane. Send in the clowns just makes a basket case out of me. Me too. <laughs> and, and I love the, the play as well. A little light music. Last but not least, who was your most important mentor? Because you have been a mentor to so many opera lovers. Clearly, one person or a couple of people in particular had a great influence on you. Two people. Oddly enough, two Roman Catholic uh, priests. Though I am Episcopalian, Catholicism light, no guilt. Um, (laughs) Father uh, George Berwanger, 
who was a Benedictine and lived and taught out of the Athenaeum on the east side of town. And he taught uh, a man by the name of David Berry, who uh, founded the old Edgecliff Theater. So while I was seeing at second hand what Father George's uh, ideas had, he had taught to David second hand, they were still here, his. And I got to know both of them very, very well. And it highly influenced how I see something. The other is Father John Deneo, who was a Benedictine, who taught me what is music. For all the years I was at CCM, nobody ever told me what music is. But he did. It is the art and science of sound. That's all it is. But anyway, uh, he taught me Gregorian chant. Oh, my goodness. When I was a student at uh, CCM, I wanted to take in so as many disciplines in music as I could. So I took a year of uh, Gregorian chant under uh, Father John. And there was only maybe five or six people in the class. Well, I signed up for Gregorian chant, too. I was, really the only, <laughs> I was the only one who signed up for it, and God love him. He taught the course with you. He taught the course with me. He said, I'm willing to come over every Wednesday for an hour and a half, and we'll go into advanced Gregorian chant. Wow. Uh, so it was not just a, a personal one-on-one teaching. It was what he taught what to listen to, what to actually hear, how to involve, how to involve uh, one's mind in what you're hearing. But you know, Charles, it also is a beautiful exemplar of what you've been talking about for so many years that I've known you, is that Michael Kaiser, who was the head of the Kennedy Center for many years, said this in a different context. He said, you make your friends for your art form one person at a time. And the fact that this priest was willing to teach a class for one student who had that thirst for knowledge to help him become a better person, Mm -hmm. a more engaged human being, a more enlightened human being, that's what your career has been all about. Every review, every ticket that you've given to someone else to come sit with you at the opera. I think if I had to enshrine uh, a particular honorific for uh, for you, Charles, I would say that you are Cincinnati Opera's lifelong ambassador. Oh. And it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you, Evans. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Marajas. 